welcome back after a summer vacation to episode 470 of the Cyber Law Podcast. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and we're about to express views that aren't shared by our institutions, our clients, our friends, our family, not even our pets. And joining me for today's uh, roundup, what amounts to a month's worth of news, Kristen Flynn Goodwin, who's formerly the general manager and associate general counsel of cybersecurity at Microsoft, now the founder of Advanced Cyber Strategies. Michael Ellis, formerly with the House Intelligence Committee and the National Security Council, and a visiting fellow at the Heritage Foundation. And finally, Nick Weaver, one of our crowd favorites, a researcher at the International Computer Science Institute and the chief mad scientist at Scary Technologies, a temporary lecturer at UC Davis. He's on the market if you want a compelling and wide-ranging technology policy thinker He's your guy. Everybody should be lining up to hire Nick Weaver. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and the host and chief provocateur for today's program. I want to jump right in. I think the story of maybe the year, certainly of the month, is the EU Digital Services Act, which took effect. And frankly, I understand why it didn't get the kind of treatment it should have, Michael, because we've run out of room in our heads for EU digital policy initiatives. They've got dozens of them, all in various stages of implementation. So this one sort of snuck up on us, but it's a big deal. Yeah, Stuart, it absolutely is. The EU may not be very good at, at incubating innovative technology companies, but they are excellent at creating the regulations for American technology companies. I think of the very large platforms that are included in this first wave of the Digital Services Act that, that now is in effect and they're enforcing it against them, I think only one of them is European. The others are all are all American platforms. So, yeah. you know, what does this do? I, didn't I read the, the one uh, European company wants to get out, too, if I remember right. They've, they're making arguments <laughs> that they shouldn't really be covered. And there's there's at least one or two Chinese companies, right? That's right. That's right. So, yeah, it applies in, in its most robust and uh, the first instance here to platforms with at least 45 million monthly active users in the EU. But, you know, fear not, there's going to be a scaled back version that will apply to any platform with a substantial connection to the EU coming into effect early next year. But, you know, this is a raft of regulation from the EU requiring platforms to take down, you know, content they deem to be illegal. So hate speech, what they decide to be disinformation, it expressly outsources compliance functions to what they call trusted flaggers. So, you know, nonprofit groups, NGOs that you know, have strong views about how companies should operate their platforms. And they're going to be chosen by governments, right? Each government will yep. say, I think you're my trusted flagger. So it's not like these are, I mean, in some cases, they'll pick NGOs, but they could they could pick uh, other government agencies. Yeah, it just opens the door to immense possibilities of bias. And also for the perspective of the governments, they can say, well, the trusted flagger said that we should be taken down. It wasn't it wasn't us, right? So you can right. you can have this, the, the censorious content moderation while avoiding any accountability for it. It's the best of both worlds for the EU regulators, but it you know, also requires platforms to open up their algorithms to auditing and you know, to additional transparency for users. So there's there's some probably some good in there as well, but this is going to be a, a complicated regulatory scheme that is going to require an army of lawyers and compliant professionals for each platform to follow it with pretty pretty severe fines if they don't. 
I mean, this is essentially the same that California made with air quality emissions for vehicles uh, a while ago, right? The market's large enough that the EU can set a more stringent rule than any other jurisdiction has and bet that companies won't leave. And it worked for them with GDPR a few years ago. You know, companies didn't throw up their hands and leave the EU. So they're, they're trying it now for, for these online platforms of the Digital Services Act. And, and you can bet that the AI regulation will be next. Yeah, clearly that's that's coming. I mean, I was struck by a statistic I saw not so long ago, which is that 10% of Facebook's global market is in Europe. That's just barely big enough to push them over the edge, it seems to me. That Europe might be overplaying its hand on this. Maybe, but you know, 10%, even of a very large number that uh, Facebook has, it's still going to add up to a lot, right? It'll still yeah. make sense, I think, financially for Facebook and for larger platforms to comply rather than exit the market. Whether companies that are operating a little differently than Facebook, whether X, uh, formerly known as Twitter, really decides to go along with this and follow the EU's rules like Facebook is going to, I'm not sure. But so far, the EU's bet that uh, it can be the most stringent regulator and you know, get everyone to comply and set the Brussels rule for the rest of the world has, has worked. Yeah. I do think there's always the choice of saying, fine, we'll do that for Europe and we won't do that for anybody else. I wonder if that isn't increasingly going to look like the way out. The fact is that Europe's view of what constitutes hate speech really starts pretty much where the Republican platform begins. And almost anything that Republicans say is likely to be viewed as hate speech somewhere in Europe. And if they start taking down stuff that is, you know, just moderately conservative views, especially Trumpist views, I can't believe that the U.S. is just going to sit back and say, oh, well, too bad for you. Uh, sucks to be Trump. Maybe. But I think the fact is that we have a First Amendment not because we think the United States Congress is a uniquely evil, censorious me uh, mechanism, but because governments are uniquely censorious and uniquely incentivized to do the wrong thing when they control speech. There's nothing that distinguishes the German government from the U.S. government in that regard. And so having a First Amendment doctrine that says, oh, well, if the Germans tell you to do it, that's no problem there. There's no constitutional, no free speech problem. Just go ahead and do it. It doesn't strike me as a long-term, stable resolution of the free speech issue. No, I mean, certainly not. But you know, practically, the, the alternative of creating an EU-only version of each platform, I think also be tremendously difficult for these platforms, right? If you're Facebook and you are going to create the EU-compliant version of your platform, as opposed to the US or the more free speech-friendly version, you know, what do you do with users in the US or friends in Europe and vice versa and want to post uh, you know, communications that would be allowed one jurisdiction, not the other. I think, I think this will all be very, very difficult. Yeah, well, I think you just say, you know, this content not available in the European Union. They've already done that in Canada for Canadian news stories. I don't think that's so hard, but we'll see. The fact is most of the people who run trust and safety in these organizations resonate to European values more than American values anyway. So they're likely to say, well, that's fine. I don't see any problem with living with the German view of hate speech. Yeah, if anything, it might, it might give them more, well, it might give them some cover, yeah. right? Like when Congress says, why are you censoring this content? Well, the, the, the EU made us do it, right? I, I, think, I think that's a fair point. It may reinforce tendencies already existing in some of, the, some of these companies. As I was reading this, I also thought, I couldn't help thinking about the Texas and Florida laws that the Supreme Court's gonna get this year. 
because a lot of what the Texas and Florida laws did was create due process and transparency in content moderation. You had to you had to tell people when you were demoting their content. You had to tell people what your standards were. Of course, the plaintiffs in those cases, oh, you can't possibly expect us to do that. It's just too hard. It's really expensive. And now they're not going to have that argument because the European Union has told them to do it and they're just going to have to do it. Yeah, echoes of the Digital Markets Act, the EU's other piece of legislation uh, in the competition sphere, where you know you had Google saying for an awfully long time that it didn't give a preference to its own its own platforms, its own products in search results, for instance, and they couldn't possibly tweak their algorithms to you know, comply with competition authorities' demands. But then, when e- the EU passes the Digital Markets Act, what do they do? They create an EU-only version that uh, that actually does fit the bill, right? I actually. They say, well, this is, this is the compliant version that uh, meets the requirements of the Digital Markets Act without filling in the second half. That, like, oh, so maybe you're saying that what you're doing before doesn't meet that non-self-referencing standard. Yeah. And one last thing that I saw when I was wading through it, for the very large, for the largest platforms, for all the American platforms and a few others, there's what amounts to a takeover clause that says, if we have a crisis, we're just going to tell you what speech you have to prioritize. And it's going to be ours. I assume they're kind of thinking about the the pandemic, but it is kind of astonishing. It's it's certainly read like a pandemic kind of requirement. Yeah, but you can certainly imagine that being abused pretty easily, right? The crisis is the you know we have an election coming up in fill in the blank EU country, and the opposition is saying things we don't like. So you know, we have to tell you to deprioritize it. Yeah, exactly. Ottawa has a bunch yeah. of truckers parked downtown. That's a national security crisis, and we're going to tell you what to say about it. Yeah, I think if if I were Ted Cruz, I would start making a, a modest specialty out of pointing to bad things that European regulation of speech is going to mean for American consumers of speech and looking for ways to get in the way of the European Union, something that hasn't happened yet. All right, Kristen, I know you love the SEC rules on cybersecurity, so I'm just going to ask you to, to tell us those rules have now also gone into effect, as I understand it. And they have said, you've got four days to tell us about any material cybersecurity incident. You've got to disclose your cybersecurity plans every year. How bad a message is that for people who are trying to do cybersecurity? So, sir, I'm sorry, my house is on fire. Let me just hit pause <laughs> so that I can go and file it. Yeah, no, it's... It's a, <laughs> yes. it's a fascinating challenge, right? I, I agree with the SEC's views that companies should be taking seriously their cybersecurity plans. They should be creating and documenting where there are risks in the company, that company leadership should be understanding that. I view that as cyber hygiene. You know, the diet and exercise pieces of how companies should be thinking about cyber. And so the more that companies take those issues seriously, the better. That to me is helpful. Where I struggle with where the SEC is going is in this area of incident response. Incident response is a really challenging time when the regulator decides to insert themselves into that conversation. And the SEC's decision that within four days of an incident having been declared, that the victim of the incident needs to either force themselves to have to declare to law enforcement that they are a victim, 
which should be the victim's choice to make that determination mm-hmm. whether they're a victim of a crime. So they either have to force to go declare that they're a victim of a crime to law enforcement and then have DOJ get involved to notify the SEC or report to the SEC on, on day four of an incident so that the SEC can evaluate materiality is a really hard thing to understand from an, an incident perspective. Well, there's no way that uh, the SEC is going to be able to adjudicate materiality once this rule starts being taken seriously. People are going to be reporting left, right, and center, aren't they? Well, the thing that's that that's troubling is when you have an incident, and let's let's go back to the fire in my house, right? You know, it's that time when I call the fire department and they're still on the way. They're not here. I'm right. fighting the fire myself. So uh, at, at that point, for me to call my insurance company and they're going to ask me, what's your damage? I don't know. Like the, the fire department's not even here. It's still burning. So how can I explain to my insurance company how extensive my damage is going to be when I'm just trying to get the pets out and figure out what to save? And so that's the reality of cyber incident response. If you think about solar winds, most of the big responders, you know, and, and I was running the legal response for Microsoft during that incident, that was a 60-day major response window of, of intense active response. Right. It was like this, the dance of seven veils. You threw one off and you said, okay, I'm done. Nope, there's, there's seven more coming. <laughs> you know, Microsoft publicly published 30, 30 32 maybe 34 blogs, updating the public about what was going on as the incident evolved and went through its normal course, as incidents do. And so at what point would you then disclose to an SEC official before you talk to CISA or other intelligence agencies that were involved in the investigation of the incident itself? The UK has the same problem where they've put their uh, NIS regulator, their data privacy guys, who now they're out of Europe, have more time and bandwidth. So so they're the the regulator you notify ahead of the UK NCSC, who's the responder of choice for cyber incidents. It's a dangerous precedent because you don't want to call your insurance company when you're putting out your fire and waiting for your responders to show up. So I struggle to see how that's going to work long term. And as CISA and others continue to gain strength and we watch this in practice, it's really going to put a chilling effect on how companies look at, do I work with the responders or do I have to talk to my regulators and parse out through counsel what I'm sharing? That, that, that troubles me. Yeah, lots of, lots of clients I've worked with, on, on, we're just doing breach notifications, right? We want to tell people, yes, there's a possibility that your data was uh, breached, but nobody knows in the first couple of days how big the breach was. And then there's this constant tension. Do you go big and just say, well, it could be everything we have? Or do you say, well, all we've seen so far is access to one particular database, and that's only 60,000 people. If you say 60,000 and it turns out that it's 5 million, you're going to be living with that. You're going to be accused of lying for the rest of the news cycle. And if you say 5 million, you're going to be in the news cycle forever until you can actually say with confidence, no, it really was only 60,000. Well, and I'm sure Nick sees this too, right? And a nation state actor or even an advanced, advanced persistent teenager can gain access to a system. And just because they've accessed the system, there may not be anything there that right. is 
relevant, right? So that's where materiality is something that has to be assessed in the moment. So why do you think the SEC did it this way? Is it just because public disclosure is the hammer that they have and uh, this problem started to look more and more like a nail the more they contemplated their hammer? I'm still sort of bottoming out my thinking on this. I I think, first of all, they have first mover advantage. Uh, You know, they are now the regulator of choice on this issue. Nobody else has done that in the United States. The FTC doesn't have that ability. And so now... They've got first mover. So they're- well, didn't Circia say if you're critical infrastructure, you've got to notify within the 72 hours? But yeah. uh, we're waiting for regs from DHS, which will take quite a while. That's right. It's not there yet. So in the interim of that, the SEC has, like Fonzie, jumped the shark. And so now whatever comes from Circia is going to have to deal with the fact that the SEC is out there first. So. Yeah. You know, that, that's that's an interesting problem. In the wake of all of this, you know, you've also seen the SEC issue a Wells notice to the former CISO of, of SolarWinds. Pour one out for every CISO in the United States or around the world, because if they're not talking to their management right now about personal indemnification and personal outside counsel fees, then, you know, please listen to this and go do that. Yeah. Because the amount of money you're going to spend in your personal defense, if one of those happens, that'll bankrupt you faster than you know what to do. So that's game changing right there. So the Wells notice there was a lot of unease, and I dealt with a lot of CISO calls about the Joe Sullivan indictment. And I thought that the Sullivan case was a pretty unusual one and kind of a one-off, and it didn't necessarily mean the CISOs were in the bullseye. But the Wells notices... I've heard different things about the Wells notices. I've been in meetings with uh, high-ranking FBI officials who've said when the facts come out, nobody will think that these Wells notices were unjustified or that every CISO is at risk. But it kind of looks like if you just get it wrong, you could could end up with a Wells notice and you're relying on the the mercy of the SEC, which is not a merciful institution. (laughs) Right? You've got the reality of the fact that the adversary is the Russian government. So they have unbounded resources. This is an intelligence operation. So if Wells Notice brings, if I've got this right, I haven't done securities law in 100 years, but if I've got it right, you know, the Wells Notice brings a civil case, if I'm correct. And Mm -hmm. I'm sure that, that our securities listeners will let me know if I've got that wrong, but I believe it's a civil case. But still, the cost of defense of that is non-trivial for a CISO. Oh, yes. So if a CISO is going to be personally on the hook for the defense of his company against a national government's pouring of resources into a major national security offense, like if a government can claim national security as a defense against other governments and have no liability for it, but an individual is going to get hoisted on a petard and you know hung out to dry. That's really interesting to me. And also just, I would rather face criminal than civil because the civil with the SEC will bankrupt you win or lose. And it's harder to win because the burden of proof is less and you have no Fifth Amendment right. Uh, one more point on this. I think the SEC will say, well, you won't get in trouble if you just disclose, right? That's where they're going to push everything towards 
disclose early, which to your point, Stuart, will mean disclosures are increasingly worthless because the disclosures will consist of either it could be everything or here's what we know right now, but that could be meaningless as well. So the original purpose, if what the SEC is supposed to be doing, protecting investors, you know, will be completely yeah. vitiated by the fact that this disclosures will just be, you know, voluminous and devoid of information. It's going to be yeah. great. It'll be like Oprah Winfrey. You yeah. get a subpoena. <laughs> you get a subpoena. <laughs> Everybody gets a subpoena. It's going to be terrific. Oh, okay. Very exciting. All right. Let's talk a little bit of China. There was a very small story, because that I wouldn't ordinarily highlight, saying that the Chinese officials have been meeting with foreign firms to tell them that they shouldn't worry so much about the data security laws in China, that they're not really intended to uh, harm foreign firms. I thought that was interesting because it was of a piece with other things that China has been doing just recently to try to take the edge off of some of the hard-nosed stuff it was doing as recently as earlier this year. I noticed that China did not follow the EU and the Brussels effect on AI. China had put out a draft AI regulation that was pretty demanding. Just in August, went final with a much less demanding set of requirements of moving toward ethics as opposed to binding regulation and registration and the like. So uh, the EU is really out there on its own, and probably understandably, China has an AI industry, the US has an AI industry, even the UK has an AI industry, and so they're all kind of cautious about uh, writing regulations without knowing what they're doing. Europe doesn't, and so, so is writing regulations that, it, uh, uh, that sound good to somebody in power. What's interesting is that even the Chinese are kind of pulling back from some of their regulatory initiatives because they want their industries to feel a little more secure than they have as a result of some of the tough action that, that China's been taking. I don't know, Kristen, whether you've got a view on where China's going with this. I mean, we, we know they're going to be cracking down on industry, but maybe they feel like they've, they've gone to 11 too soon. There's two different intersecting issues there, right? I think when you look at the data security law and the personal data protection law and, and China's views about data, that China still wants to be very protectionist about information about Chinese citizens, Chinese interests leaving China. There's a, an expiration date coming up on, um, I think it's November 30th of this year for multinationals to have to get their data transfers into compliance. And so that's what's driving some of this conversation. And so I learned over a career of negotiating with China on legal compliance is that you don't have to worry until you do. And so <laughs> right, right now, you know, it's it's this a bit of a detente and that's that's fine. It makes sense because China was so far out in front on quantum and AI, and I think they were enjoying that that success. And then with generative AI and the roaring success you've seen over the past two, two and a half years in the United States, that's really spooked China. And so right now, for them to be a bit more protectionist of their own market and interests in order to try to help those companies gain share, that they've got to take action. So it makes a lot of sense to me to watch China taking some balance right there. 
Okay, I agree with you on uh, all of that. China is clearly going to titrate its uh, regulations so as not to uh, kill off industries that it needs. And so this is probably a tactical withdrawal rather than a change of heart. But it is interesting that Europe is out there on its own. The one area where China has been very harshly regulatory is in telling big social media companies that it needs to review their their content moderation and curation software. Uh, kind of interestingly, that's also a big focus for the EU. I've been looking at the relative AI regulatory systems, and it's almost as though everybody woke up you know, about four years ago and said, oh my God, the curation could actually make a difference to to political consensus in our country. And we can't let outsiders that we don't control do that. And so if you have a really strong elite like China does, and to a significant degree the way Europe does, they say, well, we're just going to find a way to control these guys, hence the regulatory regimes in those places, with a less self-confident elite like in the U.S., there has been less effective determination to exercise control over curation of content, but it's coming there too. And that's what we've seen with all of the determinations to gain control of who gets canceled and who doesn't. It's, it's fascinating, right? Because Europe and China have gone down this path. China went down the vulnerability disclosure path two and a half years ago. And when Europe, like this month, Europe is opening up the dialogue on CRA, and if that goes into effect, then we'll have 24 hours to report brand new vulnerabilities to ENISA, which is not an incident response organization to European governments. So that's a very similar model to the Chinese vuln reporting yeah. law that's, that's already in place. So where's the US, right? That's the thing that's sort of the interesting conversation about What's the U.S. policy or voice in that geopolitical conversation when you now have two very loud regimes on the U.S. side and the China side pushing on content moderation and on data privacy and security? Vulnerability in cyber is now on the table. And, you know, we're like not there. And so it, it's a it's a really interesting problem because, you know, to your earlier conversation with Michael, when you were talking about, well, you need another platform for services in Europe. Well, you're going to do it in China anyways. So that precedent yeah. is emerging. And so if you're going to do it for data security, you're going to have that in content because China is moving down that path. And inspection of algorithms makes sense from a Chinese perspective, not from a Western perspective. So if this were the American auto industry that was being hyper-regulated in this very aggressive discriminatory fashion, um, you'd have a whole bunch of American politicians who'd say, well, this is bad for our industry and we need to push back in trade talks and the like. But because it's Silicon Valley, when they say, oh, this is really bad for us, half the Democrats and half the Republicans on the Hill say, oh, boo-hoo. <laughs> it sucks to be you, but uh, you know, call us when we care. Um, and so there's nobody who's willing to, uh, to say we don't like the impact of foreign regulation on our industry because Silicon Valley has so peeved both the left and the right, that they don't have a lot of natural allies. 
True, although we don't have our own principles set here in the United States to allow us to then have a counterpoint. And that's yes. that's the challenge. Okay, all right. Let's talk about something that's uh, easy to agree on. Regulation of cryptocurrency. Nick, <laughs> uh, I know you're a noted moderate on this topic. Can you explain what happened to Tornado Cash in court? It looks like a complete disaster for them. Uh, and I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. So for those of you not familiar, Tornado Cash is an automated money laundering system. The idea being you throw in a bunch of money, some of it dirty, some of it clean, shake it around, and through the magic of cryptocurrency, it now comes out clean. Okay. Well, through the magic of smart contracts and other automatic things yes. that you can do. So all of the laundering effectively is done automatically and therefore it's just software is the argument and therefore there's no launderer there's just software doing what software does and so you can't you can't sanction it you can't indict us etc well so in the civil coinbase hired well recruited a couple of people to try to sue ofac to say you can't sanction tornado cash and basically the judge said Ha! Huh. Tornado Cash does count as an organization. Yes, it's sanctionable. Yes, all the cryptocurrency stuff related to it is sanctionable. Oh, and if you all have legit money in Tornado Cash, here's how to actually get it out without violating sanctions. Okay, thanks. The more interesting one, though, is the criminal case. So three people developed Tornado Cash. Roman Storm, Roman Semenov, and Alexei Pertsev. Pertsev is in the Netherlands. He was arrested a year ago and is being prosecuted by the Dutch. Just this week, the federal government announced an indictment of Storm and Semenov with Pertsev listed as co-conspirator number one because, well, let the Dutch have their fun. Storm is in the U.S. and was arrested. Semenov is who knows where, probably Dubai, and just got listed individually under OFAC. And there's a couple of interesting things about the criminal case. First of all, they have communications. So you get such great things like Storm saying, hey guys, uh, we're totally bleeped when the North Koreans started using it. Morally, they're horribly guilty. The question is legally, and this, the Department of Justice was actually very careful. They aren't charged with running an unlicensed money transmitter or running a money laundering service. They are charged with conspiracy too. So the argument of it's just a program that's doing the actual money. Okay, fine, but you're conspiring with those who use the program because you built the infrastructure people use, you set up the website that people use, you did all of this to make the conspiracy work, even if you weren't the one physically handling the money. It's just an act in furtherance of the conspiracy, come on. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> which, let's face it, under U.S. conspiracy law means you're looking at big sentences when you're talking billion-dollar money launderers. The other thing that I thought was interesting is that the this is unrelated. Cloudflare is still supporting Tornado Cash. So Tornado Cash 
has a Ethereum-based site, tornadocache.eth, which resolves through the tornadocache.eth.link site, which is set up by Virgil Griffith, who's currently uh, guest of the federal government for violating North Korea sanctions, redirects to Cloudflare, and Cloudflare, as of two days ago, was hosting that site. So Cloudflare currently needs to talk to their lawyers because OFAC is one you don't OFAC around with. Okay, yeah. I mean, I can understand why they would say, well, nobody's told us to stop, but if they are doing business with Tornado Cash, which is a little hard to define. Well, um, actually, the tornadocash.eth is part of the sanctioned entity. So they are okay. web hosting a sanctioned entity. Yeah, that might be a problem. Yeah. I can see that would be a problem. All right. Well, here's another story. Let me ask you, there was another decision that was more specialized, which really went against the regulators in the cryptocurrency. Grayscale took the SEC to court and said, how come you haven't issued me a license to offer a particular brand of service or product? The, there was a decision, I think DC Circuit, three to nothing said SEC rule is arbitrary, capricious, and contrary to law, which is hard to get courts to say. How significant was the Grayscale decision? It is and it isn't. This is a case where, as much of a loather of the cryptocurrency community, I actually agree with. Because the SEC has previously approved two exchange-traded funds for Bitcoin futures. And what Grayscale wanted to do is turn their hoard of Bitcoin in their Grayscale trust into an exchange-traded fund for Bitcoin actual rather than futures. And the argument is that the SEC did not really explain why they allowed futures but not an exchange-traded fund itself. And that's correct. The SEC did not. So this goes back to the SEC, and they're either going to have to come up with a good reason why a futures exchange-traded fund is okay. It could be, we don't like this, but we are forced to anyway because the rules for futures are more relaxed, or they're going to have to approve it. So yeah. it'll be another six months to a year, but... I assume that what the real answer is, well, we approved those before we realized that before Gary Gensler got here and told us that we weren't approving anything. That's not the right answer because that's the arbitrary and capricious answer. Yeah. You actually have to come up with a good reason why futures are allowed, but presents are not. Um, okay. And that's a hard one. All right, that sounds right to me. It was a unanimous decision, a, a bipartisan panel. Uh, there's no reason to think that it was wrong. And as I say, to persuade a court that a regulator is arbitrary, capricious, and contrary to law requires some doing. It helps when the regulator is. Yeah. Here's one, again, I put this in kind of to make a point. I'm not sure it's the most important news of the a month. But it tells us something about where regulation is going and why the U.S. needs to kind of rethink its position. Intel had bought an Israeli semiconductor company that makes mostly analog chips, but it's a foundry called Tower Semiconductor. And everybody said, yeah, there's no, there's no 
antitrust problem there, except the Chinese, who didn't say there was and didn't say there wasn't. They just said, we're still thinking about it. Uh, when's your deadline? Yeah, we'll be thinking about it then, too. The deadline to close the deal came, and Intel just had to say, I guess we're not buying Tower. And it was pretty clearly just spite, right? Uh, they don't like Intel. They, they want Intel to fail. And so why should they help Intel do anything? But that raises the question, why are we cooperating with, why are we not treating the antitrust and competition decisions of the Chinese government similar to all their other regulatory decisions as likely trade violations that we should try to find a way to defeat rather than surrender to. That's my take on it, Kristen. I asked you to think about whether you agree with me or not. Here's your chance. Yeah, and I think that China plays a longer game. And so while, yes, by running the clock out and taking no position, they gave Intel an opportunity to make a $350 million donation to the folks at Tower. (laughs) I think that it's a it's more of a sign back to the administration that they're extremely unhappy with the, the broader positions that the Biden administration took when the law went into effect about chip restrictions. Right. So it's just China's way of trying to not have to make a broad statement and still speak loudly. I, I think we'll continue to see more of these types of examples and so, you know, you take a principled approach and then you see see this sort of stuff coming back. It'll require the administration to, to have to go think about, do we need to have a reaction or is this enough? Is this big enough? Or does more need to be done in order for U.S. companies to be able to continue to develop chips and remain competitive? Yeah, I have a vision of American antitrust lawyers at the Justice Department and the FTC basically ending up in the same position as Christian missionaries to China in the 20s. They've been selling competition theory to China for 40 years, and they finally got what seemed to be a real live regulatory antitrust authority over there. They're so in love with having succeeded in their missionary work that they're not seeing that it's not working out the way they actually thought it should. And the Chinese government is not playing by the same rules. It's going to end in tears and probably better for us to end it in tears sooner rather than pretending that they are the trust busters like the rest of us in the short run. But Who knows? We'll say maybe I have underestimated the cynicism of the antitrust division at Justice, but I don't think so. All right. um, Cepheus, Michael, there was a leak of the TikTok Cepheus negotiations. Apparently, there's a 100-page national security mitigation agreement floating out there that the reporter got to look at. Uh, She's an interesting reporter. She also used to do policy for a couple of big Silicon Valley companies, Facebook and another one. And so she analyzed it. And I ended up coming to the conclusion that nothing that I read in there looked like it was strikingly different from what is either said or understood in a national security agreement with a company that the U.S. government doesn't really trust. Did you see anything in there that, I mean, it was written in tones of alarm. Oh, my God, the U.S. government's going to own this uh, capability to interfere with a uh, the free speech rights of Americans. But it looked like a 
slightly tougher version of stuff that we've seen before. Yeah, a lot of the components of the national security agreement, as described by Forbes, looked like fairly typical stuff that was was hyped up in their reporting. Like, oh my goodness, they'll have the ability to access the facilities at any time, you know, without advance notice. Like, that's pretty standard fare, I think. But there were some parts of that that I thought were a little unusual. You know, the the uh, feature that there would be an executive security committee at TikTok that would have security-related decision-making power and would operate separately from ByteDance, but and would be charged with protecting the security of the U.S. not making money. Like I, I, that's, yeah, but that's something you see in DOD contracts all the time. But but, but you know this this isn't a military contractor, right? At least right. <laughs> at least we didn't think of it that way. I thought actually part of the news here was not the substance of the national security agreement with the marginal comments back and forth between TikTok's lawyers and, and the U.S. government, but the fact that this leak happened at all. Right? This it's, it's pretty unusual to have a national security agreement be leaked, but this is one that was a year old, Yeah, right? Which suggests to me that it's someone who was close enough to the process to, to have a copy of it, but not close enough to have the most recent copy, or they're just unhappy that the negotiations have stalled and there isn't a more recent copy. The subtext here, I think, is that the talk of a TikTok ban in Congress has died down. The executive branch is moving nowhere fast, and someone inside the government is unhappy that I think TikTok's going to at least be on a path to skate away without any restrictions, right? That the, the appetite to, to take strong action towards TikTok has really faded over the last several years and the window is no longer there. That could be, although if you read the story and you ask, well, who, who seems to be enthusiastic about being able to talk about this leaked document, it wasn't TikTok, it certainly wasn't the U.S. government, but it was all those NGOs, you know, the ACLU and the EFF types who have been recently very aggressive in saying that typious regulation of TikTok is a bad thing for the ecosystem of uh, social media. So you kind of wonder whether maybe those guys uh, leaked it. Certainly the reporter was buying into the idea that there was a civil liberties problem here. Yeah, and obviously, remember, the U.S. government is not a monolith, right? There uh, might be individuals within uh, yes, the U.S. Sure. government who, uh, you know, share the agendas of the civil liberties group, you know, who aren't aren't necessarily at the top of those agencies who could have an old copy of the agreement. But, yeah, it's, it's interesting to me that, you know, the Restrict Act had a few months ago it got the endorsement of the Biden administration. We haven't seen anything on that in a while. Uh, allegedly, there is a scaled-back version that Senator Warren is working on. But the appetite for the outright ban of TikTok politically has really dissipated outside of the state level where Montana attempted to ban it. And that's now subject to a legal challenge. We'll see, you know, we'll see how that does. I don't see the executive branch taking action here anytime soon or or Congress for that matter. Yep. I think TikTok has played the, the policy game very effectively, in my view. They're the first Chinese company to do it right. Some of the other companies that have been subject to this kind of attack ended up failing, like Huawei, but TikTok is going to win this one, I think. Not, not necessarily a good thing for the United States, right? But uh, but they make, they make it away. Yeah. Right. All right. Well, we're not going to go through August without talking about the war in Ukraine. And Nick, the Washington Post had a pretty good article about how AI integrated into drones was something that was changing the face of the war on a weekly basis in Ukraine. A lot of these stories are written in an effort to kind of make everybody feel good about the war when uh, there isn't a lot of movement on the front lines. 
But this one was interesting. It did suggest that drone warfare is really changing fast. Yes. So obligatory plug, I'll be in DC next week. And I actually have an academic talk on the subject. If people want to meet with me, host me for a talk, reach out. The Ukrainian folks are going to a model that is best described as human on the loop with failed deadly autonomy. So the problem with drones is they're jammable. Even military drones are jammable and the civilian drones are just so easy to jam. And so there's two ways you can counter it. One is really go on counter jamming, which doesn't work. Or you just basically make the drone so that if it loses communication, it can still do the mission. And that's what the Ukrainians are going towards at a very rapid clip. So, for example, the classic first-person drone munition. Well, once you lock on a target, if you lose communication, just fly at the target. Once you go up a step and have a significant computer, which these some of the larger ones do, literally Raspberry Pis hooked up to commercial IMUs, well, that gives you enough compute power to do vision-based recognition. And it's really not AI. It's control theory. It's evaluating your environment in a more formal manner and completing the mission. And there's multiple companies in Ukraine doing this. We could really help them out in the U.S. by making it easier and providing them stuff. But this is the future of war. And the DOD has recognized this as well. They just announced a new focus where they're basically retargeting a billion dollars worth of R&D funding specifically on how do you create and defend against lots of really cheap drones. So sub-thousand dollar semi-autonomous, fully autonomous systems. Yeah, I, I, I struck by... A couple of things. One, obviously, this is a response to fears that China is going to be able to outmanufacture the U.S. in a crisis over Taiwan, uh, that they now have more stuff that they can throw at Taiwan than we can throw at them to defend Taiwan. One of the answers to that is, let's find a way to make a whole bunch of stuff cheap that we can throw back, and maybe that works. I'm also struck by uh, how a lot of this effort on the Ukrainian part is overcoming security measures that DJI built into their drones at the instance of governments that were worried about terrorism, such as being able to jam them to figure out who is controlling them. And obviously, you, you can't let those features dominate uh, the battlefront. But once you've developed the software for that, you know, I would think the Secret Service should be scared as hell. Yes, I've said publicly, I think Joe Biden is the last U.S. president who will walk under the open sky. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's uh, exciting. Uh, <laughs> the other thing that the administration has done quite recently, and this is sort of CFIUS related, CFIUS is all about foreign government money coming, foreign money coming in and taking over U.S. companies where we're afraid that they will use those U.S. companies in ways that we're not happy about. The latest concern has been what about U.S. money going to help develop technologies in countries that we worry about, especially China. This is shortcut as outbound CFIUS. 
And uh, outbound CFIUS has been a thing we've been expecting for months. Finally happened. Turned out to be uh, kind of modest in its implication. It's an executive order saying, we're really going to have outbound CFIUS, and I'm going to ask Treasury to write the regs. Uh, and Treasury has said, well, we don't know what regs we're going to draft exactly, but we think we're going to tell people that they can't invest in quantum computers and sophisticated chips, uh, and we're going to ask them to notify us if they're going to be investing in artificial intelligence. Very modest. It may or may not actually happen well during the, this administration. I don't know, Kristen, my guess is this is aimed at companies like IBM and Microsoft, where they are afraid that those companies will put money and talent and enthusiasm and sophisticated marketing and market research capabilities into Chinese manufacture. Well, I mean, Shanghai is the center of a lot of AI development and, and, and quantum for and has been for a long time. And so the development of talent and and capability there this isn't new right so it's it's nice to see this action i think this came out what august 9th right so it's it's nice to see that government is is articulating that it cares about semiconductors and microelectronics and quantum and ai and that as a as a matter of national security and policy that it's time to take protection more seriously you know, this started 15 years ago. So, you know, the, the depth and breadth and talent that exists in other places is, is pretty significant. I think it also sends a marker out to the VC space where, because now that we've got generative AI and, and growth and explosion and smaller companies moving into quantum to look for opportunities there, that if you start having covered persons and covered entities that it makes it harder for VC money to also start to flow into that space. So that has an impact on the smaller businesses that would also come up around this. The notice piece was interesting to me because notify doesn't really mean stop or go or do anything other than just, hey, we're doing this. And so, yeah, that that felt like it was a a missed opportunity and more of a wait and see. I, I think it was a confusion about whether we could actually effectively control how the direction of AI or the sophistication of AI research in China. I, I think there are a fair number of people inside the government and outside who think that China has a lot of people who can do AI, and some of them are very, very good, and maybe so good that U.S. companies are dependent on them. And so saying, we're not going to let you talk to the Chinese on AI might turn out badly for us. Yeah, I think that's right. I think this is too little too late as well. They talked about doing this outbound investment regulatory scheme for two years, and when they, you know, when there's finally the executive order, it directs Treasury to write a reg, which Treasury doesn't have ready to go. Treasury has to solicit comments on the reg, you know, with the advanced notice of public rulemaking, it's going to be at least a year, I suspect, before there's a reg in place. So, you know, this, this is a, a, a very long windup for a limited scope compared to what everyone was talking about needed to be done, you know, a year or two years ago. What's most exciting to me is the fact that U.S. innovation in AI has exploded and quantum is going strong. And so the fact that China is so worried about that now, they're holding back on their own AI policies we already talked about, right? So China is worried. They want development from their own market. 
So this is the U.S. coming out with something that that may be perceived by China as having an impact. Will we see some retaliation? Probably. They won't like it. So apropos of the thread that's been going through this whole conversation, will we see some quiet response like they slow rolled on Intel in order to have a negative effect on that tower deal? Yeah, let's wait and see, because that's China's MO, right? If they don't like something, you'll see some quiet responses that will let you know further on down the line. Yeah, yeah. Don't send any more emails to Gina Raimondo, because they're going to be hacking her account from from now till the end of time. Uh, uh, They they already did. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I think, uh, Michael, to respond to your point, they may have given the regulatory job to one of the agencies that was least sure that we needed to regulate in this area. And usually an advance notice of proposed rulemaking is called an ANPR because it's advanced. I think in this case, it could have been described as an ambivalent notice of proposed rulemaking. Uh, uh, they're just, they're not sure they want to do this. And so they're going to give everybody a chance to explain why they shouldn't do this. Yeah. And also the, the agency that is institutionally the most conservative with its authorities in this space, right? This, this is all based in IEPA the International right. Economic Emergency Powers Act. And, you know, Treasury is a very jealous guardian of those powers. And I think they're either worried about any possible legal challenge and possibly losing. So they're they're putting themselves on the strongest possible footing to withstand that challenge, but doing so are going to miss the opportunity, I think, to make a difference to the policy front. Okay, last story I wanted to cover. If you watch it day to day, autonomous vehicles are just a, the source of endless amusement and you know silly stories about getting stuck in cement. But um, this one uh, that The Verge was eager to tell us that uh, people are having sex in robo-taxis and nobody is talking about it except us. <laughs> uh, a technology and sex story is... Uh, you know, right in our sweet spot, so I couldn't resist it. But actually, I wonder if we haven't started to turn a corner on autonomous vehicles with the approval by San Francisco of 24-7 operation of robo-taxis. For all of the scare stories, and there were plenty of them, including one that said, oh, there's a bias in recognizing pedestrians. Waymo in particular, but Cruz as well, they I've done an awful lot of driving without killing anybody, and that distinguishes them from Tesla, I think. Uh, But I wonder if we aren't getting to the point where outside of places that get a lot of snow, we could start seeing a lot of autonomous vehicles. I'm not so sure. So first of all, in the Verge story, what happens in the robo-taxi ends up on Pornhub. So we'll probably have documentation of this soon enough. But the San Francisco decision is actually remarkably controversial because it wasn't a local decision. It was the State Utilities Commission overriding everybody in the area. Ah, yeah, okay. And their track record is good, partially because they're cheating. San Francisco, you can never go above 25 miles an hour. It's hard to kill somebody in a car versus car crash at 25 miles an hour. But you can kill a lot of pedestrians if you want. Yeah, and it's also questionable whether they haven't killed somebody because... One of the things they've had huge issues with, especially Cruz, is dealing with unusual situations like, oh, you're blocking a bleeping ambulance 
it takes time for the ambulance to get out of the way and Cruz's excuses. Oh no, actually the ambulance theoretically could have gone around and the patient who died at the hospital was going to die anyway. So yes, of course their interaction with emergency vehicles leaves something to be desired, but that surely is fixable. I mean, if nothing else, the, the emergency vehicles should feel a lot less uneasy about just kicking them to the curb and just drive over them or push them aside. It does seem to me that we're down to things that make good stories, but that are not systemic problems with the safety of the vehicle. Actually, it is because these things are not good at handling unknown situations and there needs to be a much cleaner way to get the bleeping thing to move out of the way the other thing is though it seems like the wrong market for me that if i was to focus on autonomous vehicles i'd focus on long-haul trucks because that's a much more constrained environment than the city I do agree with you that the case for the fire and forget autonomy is driving on the expressway. I, I would like that much more than having it in my car to drive around town. But you can't get to the expressway without driving on side streets, and so they need to be able to do that. And it looks to me as though, apart from weird weather, they're getting to the point where they can do that. They're getting close, but they're a lot more disruptive than you think, because among other things, they're deadheading a lot. So a lot of the miles are just literally driving around, consuming traffic space, and not actually carrying anybody. The other thing is these systems that have a remote chance of working, Cruise, Waymo, you're talking $100,000 sensor suites on the things. You you see one drive by, you can't mistake it between all the disco balls worth of spinning LADAR in order to actually have the car see what's around it. Okay, so that's that's the problem is they've, they've managed to succeed, but at a cost that makes them unaffordable by ordinary people. But what are we, what are we going to do about the robot lawnmower circling uh, Stewart's house? Oh, God, I, I, what can I say? These guys come once every two weeks, but they manage to come at the first time I've done this podcast from my house in probably three months. Um, uh, my apologies to the listener. Let me just ask one last thing, Nick. The story, it was a classic AI bias story. It said... If you have dark skin and you're a pedestrian, you're a little more likely, or maybe a lot more likely, depending on how you read the statistics, to be missed by the autonomous driving software. I was kind of skeptical, and, and I can explain why, but I thought I'd ask you what you thought of that study. It's an ugly preprint that should be ignored because it's not good. Okay. So, A, they didn't actually test it on real-world software. They just had some open-source stuff that they used. B, is it bias or physics? Right. How much mistake does it make whether you're wearing something like this black T-shirt I have or a white T-shirt, especially at night? Right. And this is also why visual sensors are not what Cruise and Waymo are using. They're using LADAR, which allows them to actively see what's around in an active mode. So things like clothing color matter a heck of a lot less. 
Yeah, I was struck by the same thing. That when you when you look at the study, they got the numbers they got showing a differentiation by averaging all of them. But if you looked at the good systems, the good systems had very modest, if at all, discrimination problems on the distinction between light skin and dark skin. It got covered as bias because the press is relentlessly inclined to. to run bias stories. And if you're a researcher, you have to play to that inclination if you want your story to get play. So I think this is a reason to be skeptical, not just of this study, but of a lot of the studies claiming AI bias, because many of them have similar flaws and have turned AI bias into kind of a self-confirming prophecy. You can't read about this stuff without seeing claims of bias, many of which are hard to justify using real science. But also at the same time, part of the problem is with machine learning, it's a great way to train a computer to be a racist asshole. And it seems a lot of users actually like it that way. <laughs> I disagree with you on that one, but I'm going to let you have the last word. Uh, thanks, Nick. Thanks, Kristen. Thanks, Michael, for joining us. Uh, if you've got questions and you're in the audience, comments, feedback, send them to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Leave us a review. That would be great. Uh, we are still commercial free and inclined to stay that way, but increasingly we're rara avis in doing that. So we'd love to hear from you if you like it that way. This has been episode 470 of the Cyber Law Podcast. OFAC is one you don't OFAC around with.